I am Regina de Miguel, and from my practice as an artist, I have been interested in certain geographical environments that we could call extreme, such as the Atacama Desert in Chile and the wild forest of Chocó, Colombia. Places that are historically and culturally connoted in such a way that they are defining archetypes for understanding the relationship between culture and geopolitics. About five years ago, I also did a project on Deception Island, Antarctica. My interest in this space came from the study of extremophilia, lovers of extreme environments. So I contact with the Astrobiology Center in Torrejón de Ardoz, Madrid which works in collaboration with NASA. In conversations with them, I received the invitation to form part of the scientific mission, and I was able to live in this singular underwater volcano of unique characteristics. While I made a film work that was conceived as a dialectic tool of subjective and common agency, appealing to the formation of new models of existence, to the exploration of the subterranean and telluric, as a journey through the raw material of our existence and the problems of a planet in crisis. Now I find myself working on another apparently opposite territory, but not so much, the region of Rio Tinto in Andalusia, Spain. This Red River belongs to an almost mythological place for being in a territory of extremely high mineral wealth. Its mines being among the oldest of humanity, but also, like deception, it is an analog of Mars on Earth. Both are paradigms that question us about the beginning of life in the universe. Historically, different cultures and civilizations came to the Rio Tinto territory to explode the mines. The most recent example being the British colonization during the 19th century with the Rio Tinto Company. During this time, the exploitation and the slavery of the native population, the polluting methods of mineral extraction, and the connivance of a corrupt government led to a massacre in 1888, in what is considered the first ecological strike in history. A historical fact that has almost disappeared from the memory of a country and which is linked to the disappearance of dissidents during the civil war and Franco's dictatorship. In the Rio Tinto meaning basin, there is also the largest mass grave located in a rural area because the dictator decided to make an example of the meaning rebellion. From here, I also reflect on the dynamics of global resource extraction. Rio Tinto company still exists and operates worldwide with constant human rights violations. That was Regina de Miguel, and I am your host, Angels Miralda. Welcome to another podcast series of Stage. In 2019, I spent two weeks with Regina de Miguel on the Azores Archipelago, a chain of nine volcanic islands in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean. There, she interviewed archaeologists, physicists, and worked in historic archives at the seam between the European, African, and North American tectonic plates. Sometimes, these edges of the world can tell us more about ourselves than populated urban centers but they don't always have to be remote. For her new project, De Miguel puts in parallel the Island of Deception, a small volcanic island close to Antarctica, only accessible to scientists, and an area close to her own home in Andalucía, the mining region of Rio Tinto. The stories told by Regina De Miguel share a silent origin. They emerge from and are subsumed below the folds and edges of continental plates, consumed by an ever-moving Gaia. 
The rich folds of minerals accumulated beneath the earth in mines of gold and silver offer a speculation of riches, but often leave both the land and local populations in destitute exploitation through the phenomenon of resource curse. Rio Tinto originates in a mountainous area northwest of Seville. Its waters are so rich in minerals from the surrounding area that its waters flow red like blood through the Andalusian countryside. Making its way down from the town of Nerva, past Niebla, and finally reaching the Atlantic Ocean to the Gulf of Cadiz. This is the site of one of the longest continuously active mines in the world. Attracted to its rich lands, traders from Jerusalem wrote of a king of silver in the west. This land would later become the hinterland of the great port of Seville, a port from which many vessels departed in the conquest of the New World and a center of the slave trade. Like those iron-rich molecules from the river that spread slowly through the currents of the Atlantic Ocean, Spanish vessels would soon reach even the southernmost tip of South America, close to the island of deception. Today, the name Rio Tinto is more often connected to the last company to buy the lands, an Anglo-Australian mining conglomerate formed by British entrepreneurs who bought the lands in 1870 and exhibited a ruthless hunger for profit. In 1888, Rio Tinto became the location of the world's first ecological workers' strike. Miners, women, and children demonstrated together against the destructive open-air mining of the company and to preserve agriculture and their local way of life. The demonstration was met by the Spanish armed forces who were given the order to open fire. The river ran red with blood and iron. The Rio Tinto company has since spread all over the world and activists continue to struggle against their environmentally and socially damaging actions. This long line of resistance is growing louder all over the world, not just among miners, but in the global fight for climate justice. Yet ironically, Rio Tinto is also a source of hope for the survival of life on a damaged planet. The acidic conditions of the river and its high volume of dissolved metals means that no immediately recognizable form of life is visible. But on a microscopic level, it is teeming with colonies and cultures. These life forms are called extremophiles, ones who not only adapt and survive in the most adverse conditions, but thrive. They include bacteria, algae, and some heterotrophs. Some consume sulfides and release a byproduct of ferric iron, which further acidifies the water and contributes to greater amounts of dissolved heavy metals. For this reason, Rio Tinto has also become the center for the search of life in the universe. Because of its unique features, astrobiologists have been drawn to this river, speculating about the possibility for life on Mars or in lunar seas, such as the underground waters of Europa, a moon orbiting Jupiter. Today we have invited two scholars with backgrounds in the history of social movements in the area and astrobiology to comment on this environment both historically, in the present, and in the future. Our first guest is Dr. Francisco Javier Garcia Fernandez. He is currently a faculty member of the University of Granada in the Department of Social Sciences and Humanities. He received his PhD in the Program of Postcolonial Studies and Global Citizenship from the University of Coimbra under Dr. Boaventura de Souza Santos. He is a member of the Andalusian Workers' Union and has specialized in epistemologies of the South and worker movements in rural areas. The Rio Tinto Corporation represents a British-style colonization within the Andalusian territory, reminding us that nothing is as straightforward as it seems. This comes from a longer route in the history of so-called Reconquista and the colonization of the Americas. What links exist between these histories and what do you see in this continuation of exploitation of populations and territory? 
Well, to fully understand the role of the Rio Tinto Corporation in Huelva, we have to locate Huelva's historical context within the context of southern Europe. The south of the Iberian Peninsula is historically a territory of war, of conquest. It's a border territory that has been marked very specifically by the badly named Castilian reconquest of the Andalusian territories which generated a series of war economies, of looting policies, of crusades that the Spanish crown deployed across the whole Andalusian territory, especially in the south of the Iberian Peninsula. The southern part of Andalusia is especially marked by this border condition, because we have to remember that it wasn't just a territory of Spanish conquest southward, of Christian crusade southward, but in a way, it was also the territory where the next step of the colonial process was built, the next process of expansion, which would be the badly named Discovery of America, right? Both the badly named Reconquest and the badly named Discovery were phases of the same process of imperial expansion that led to the formation of the world system of early capitalism. And it was found in Huelva, Seville, Cadiz, the south of Andalusia. Like any border territory between Europe, Africa, Latin America, but also between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic Ocean. It's an area that doesn't only separate, you could say, the border condition doesn't just split a territory, but in turn that border territory also generates a community, a particular community that is developed within this war of reconquest and of colonial expansion in the Americas. British colonization, as we know, unfolds mainly from the 19th century onwards, especially following the crisis of the Spanish Empire at the end of the 18th century, and with the independence of the Latin American republics in the first third of the 20th century. The North American hegemony controls the spaces formerly occupied by Spanish colonialism, and not just the old Spanish territories in America, but also the interior of the peninsula. It's the case of the port of Cadiz, which is strongly impregnated with British culture and British merchants, which resulted, for instance, in the celebration of the Cortes of Cadiz, abounding with a liberal climate due to the contact with the British presence, a British presence that included the mines of Rio Tinto. A presence that is also linked to the extractive economy, aggressive economy, to colonial-type economies. But in this case, within the peninsula itself, an economy that generates as part of its development, subdevelopment, meaning that it produces underdevelopment, it produces a series of aggressive economies, dispossessions, a contaminant economy that has kept Andalusia in a historically backward position, underdeveloped, keeping it in this economic position of producer of highly contaminating material. It's a highly extractive economy of exploitation of the workforce, both in the mining and the chemical sectors, like in the big estates that exist in Huelva, in Seville and Cadiz. And all this extractive economy and these colonization processes supporting the Reconquista and expansion to America which are produced in Huelva, are important to understand the context of the mining and chemical economy in Huelva, for example, the Rio Tinto Corporation. In this area of the Rio Tinto mines, there are many instances of popular resistance that are produced in the territory as social and cultural expressions. In 1888, it was the workers of the Rio Tinto mines who organized the first ecological protest in the world. Can you explain what happened at this point in history and why does it remain unknown in contemporary Spain? 
In the territories where early capitalism, from the 16th century through all the centuries of colonization and up until now, the Industrial Revolution in the modern world, the territories that had more aggressive capitalism and more predatory economies, in those territories there exist communities that had to resist and reinvent resistance practices in a much more creative way than in territories, let's say, where there were human rights or territories where capitalism was regulated. In territories like Huelva, but also in Latin America or in Northern Africa, the resistances have been much more creative and in a way they've been innovative in relation to questions such as, for instance, the environment. As you pointed out, in 1888 there was a revolt of workers, miners and farmers against the effects produced in the Rio Tinto mines. It creates a curious alliance between workers demanding jobs, but also farmers whose crops are affected by pollution, a mobilization joined by a group of communities as what is really at risk is life itself. We see at the end of the 19th century a series of mobilizations that put life at the center, life in a broad sense, not just human life, but the environment, nature, a new way of understanding the relationship with nature. And that is present both in the farmers' fights, in the laborers' fights for land distribution, and in the miners' fights in Huelva, but also in the worker movements throughout the 20th century and in the 70s and 80s, in the fight for agrarian reforms and the fight for land distribution. And now we also see new forms of unionism emerging, for example with the women laborers' platform, Jornaleras de Huelva en Lucha. We see it in the cultivation of strawberries, which we know is a very technical, very developmentalist cultivation that produces a series of negative effects for the environment, but also exploits the working classes, creates migrations of Moroccan women who are taken to Huelva to pick strawberries and then sent back to their land. All these migration models of intensive cultivation need new forms of unionism, new alliances between the native working class and the migrant working class, between the women who are rural workers but also the consumers who are consuming strawberries in other parts of the world. These alliances come about thanks to the creativity of these communities that face new forms of dispossession that capitalism always brings to these border territories. As such, the resistances coming up in the South, in this case in Southern Europe, are formed in anticipation of what later become ecological fights or feminist or intersectional fights in the North. As such, the fights in the South keep showing us how to think of another world, how to build an alternative, and that ecology, feminism, unionism, all these resistances are actually languages that come from the communities that fight for survival and that fight to put life at the center. You speak of extreme conditions, and the definition of extreme is always relative to a normal territory. Can you explain this dynamic between the center and the periphery and how it applies to contemporary Andalusia? Capitalism, both historical capitalism and modern capitalism, always generates more violence, more dispossession on its borders, in their areas of its expansion. Capitalism always brings war to those places where it expands, right? 
Those places are extreme. They are places of certain aggressiveness, both economic and political, that also lead to very extreme social expressions. At a spiritual level, we can't understand, for example, the Virgin of Guadalupe in the context of the violence in Mexico, nor can we understand the Virgin of Rocío without all these social and economic contradictions that I'm considering for Welva. But this also deals with thinking in extremes or thinking about the peripheries, always from the center out. And I think that this is a paradigm that is starting to shatter. Modern societies are getting farther away each time from an explanation where there's only one center and many peripheries. The crisis of the West and the crisis of the colonial world, the European crisis, the crisis of Eurocentrism leads us to think of a world where there are many centers. We have to think, for instance, of a periphery like Huelva, which has a subaltern position in relation to Madrid, to the Spanish state, but has also seen the participation of British colonialism, which in turn has a presence, let's say it like that, a connection with Spanish colonialism in Latin America. What is the center of this periphery? Could a periphery have many centers? Thinking about periphery center, Periphery centers leads us to imagine new relationships between centers and peripheries, so that a periphery would normally have more than one center and as such different rhythms. And this also has to do with the fact that we often define the peripheries from the center. I think that we should actually define the center from the periphery, meaning that a periphery like Huelva, an environmental and economic disaster like that of the chemical industry, but also the agrarian neoliberalism that is represented by strawberry cultivation, all these experiences that make Huelva a periphery also define the center. It also says something about the Spanish state, something about Europe, and also something about capitalism. As such, I think that in each periphery, we can also read how that periphery defines the center, how that periphery is in a position to tell us something about the center or about the series of centers that affect it and with which it relates. In a way, these peripheries also, if we know how to observe them, if we know how to read them, become their own center and generate a series of cultural, artistic, religious, social expressions that each want to feel like the center and tend to build themselves up as the center. That is also the battle of feminism. That is also the fight of the anti-racism movement, of anti-imperialism, thinking beyond the center, thinking ourselves as a periphery and transitioning to a new paradigm where that hegemonic relationship between the center and each periphery is broken, where each border region can think of itself as its own center. Juan Ángel Vaquerizo is the Education and Public Outreach Officer at the Centro de Astrobiología. He is an astrophysicist and joined the National Institute of Aerospace Technology in 2007 as the Educational Manager of the Partner Project. In 2009, he joined the Outreach Department of the Centro de Astrobiología, or Unidad de Cultura Científica, UCC, as the Head of Educational Projects. He has worked as a scientific and content curator in exhibitions on space exploration, for instance, Mars, The Conquest of a Dream in 2017, and After the Moon, Exploring the Limits of Space in 2019. I'd like to ask about Rio Tinto, which is one of the locations of a new film by Regina de Miguel. It is also one of the locations with which your center works um, on astrobiology. So can you explain what it is that makes this place a suitable location to research the possibility of life outside of planet Earth? Rio Tinto is a river, it's a, a very interesting site for astrobiology research because it's a stream 
acid environment. The importance of that environment is because it's a possible analog for the Martian subsurface. So everything that we are learning about this environment can help us to understand how some environments on Mars can uh, harbor life, not um, actual life, but maybe past life, because uh, we think that uh, this environment on Mars is related with its past. So we think that uh, Rio Tinto is a very, very interesting site to understand how it's possible on Mars to, to harbor past life. The environment is extremely um, acidic, and yet it's full of life. So the creatures living here are called um, extremophiles, and these have been an interest of, uh, of the Miguel for a long time, and they continue to be a part of her films. Um, so they're defined as creatures that not only tolerate, but thrive in what we consider to be extreme, uh, quote-unquote, conditions. Um, and yet Earth has not always had the same conditions as today. So what does the existence of these beings mean for a changing planet? In astrobiology, it's important for us to know about life, because life as a phenomenon is very, very unusual in the universe. We have only one example of life in the universe. This is a terrestrial life. So when we consider that life as phenomenon could be possible all over the universe, we need to know about the, the only example of life that we know. So when we study all different kind of environments that we can find on Earth, we need to know how organisms have developed the possibility of live in that kind of environments. When we consider the conditions of that environments, we compare them with our conditions of life. I mean, with a human being's conditions of life. In that case, we consider that when a bacteria is living in a very acidic environment, we think that this kind of living being is extreme for us, but it's only for comparison with us. It's a, it's a very anthropocentric point of view regarding life. So for us, these uh, stromophiles are important to know how life is possible on very, very different kind of environments. And these uh, uh, living beings teach us about the possibility of life to develop in every different kind of environment. When we compare from Earth to another planets or to another uh, moons on the solar systems and beyond, we can try to make comparison and try to hypothesize that in that environments, in that extreme environments beyond Earth, we can also find these kind of organisms, maybe. So in that case, we need to develop uh, some kind of strategies to study these environments and to deduce from this kind of data that we can gather from there the possibility of existence of life. It's very, very interesting to study the extremophiles to understand how life can be developed in these kind of conditions. The naming of extremophiles is showing kind of the anthropocentric kind of condition of the history of science. That's actually a very good way to lead into the next question about the environment of Rio Tinto, because it's quite uh, controversial whether this can be considered natural um, or man-made. So um, because of the heavy mining industry that has historically surrounded the region, it's, um, it's unclear what can be called pollution. So does this uh, matter to the study of astrobiology? 
it's a very controversial question. For scientists, it's not controversial because when uh, scientists from Center for Astrobiology come there to study, to try to uh, found this kind of uh, organisms, they are studying the actual conditions there and they are deducing that these uh, acidic conditions make possible for this kind of bacteria to live there. When they uh, studied the rocks or the, the riverbed, and in a historical point of view, they deduced that maybe in the past, the river could be acidic also. So the real conditions of the river maybe are natural, not also artificial. But it's true that a long time ago has been mining activities there. So there's no consensus about that. I, I can tell you that, for instance, now scientists that are uh, working on uh, this um, environment, consider that there is a, a natural environment. It's true that there are zones that the mining activities is clear there and the conditions there of the rocks are clearly man-made, but uh, the environment may be it's, uh, natural in a 90, maybe 95%. So scientists now consider that Rio Tinto is a natural uh, acidic environment made by organisms. But I can tell you that it's very controversial now. Actually, at this moment in which we're talking about a climate emergency, for instance, that relates to this, um, or also in the context of a new kind of privatized era of space exploration that we're experiencing, um, what are the implications uh, of the possibility for life for future space missions? Um, at the Center for Astrobiology, you are researching how to find potentially habitable planets in the universe. So what do you see happening 50 or 100 years from now? That's the big question. When we are doing research as scientists, we need to hypothesize some kind of ideas. And for us in astrobiology, we know that the environments can harbor life. So we know that life maybe is a common phenomenon in the universe when conditions make possible for life to exist. So we can try to hypothesize what can we do in the future, in the next decades or in the next centuries, regarding the possibility for us to study these kind of conditions outside Earth. And for us, technologically speaking, we are now able to discover or to know about these conditions in all over the solar system. We need time to travel, but we can do it robotically speaking. So now we are able to send robotic probes all over the solar system. We can uh, study these environments. For instance, we can go to Mars. It only takes uh, seven months to go to Mars. Uh, it takes eight to 10 years to go to Europa or to Enceladus or to Titan in Saturn or in Jupiter. But we, we are able to go there. It's a very interesting uh, times because maybe it's possible for us to discover the possibility of past life on Mars and also to discover the existence now, the life now on, for instance, Europa, at uh, Jupiter's moon. Below the, the icy crust of Europa, there is a big liquid water ocean and maybe it's full of life now. So we need to go there uh, to study these conditions and uh, to try to deduce the possibility of uh, existence of life there. So in the next decades, I think that we can answer the question that there is life outside Earth and there is life in the solar system. And maybe in the next centuries, 
we can discover if uh, life uh, is a, a common phenomenon in the universe. We can discover a new exoplanets harboring life with a James Webb Space Telescope that is going to be launched in next December. With this kind of uh, instruments, we can study exoplanetary atmospheres very, very, very far away from us. And we can try to deduce from this data the existence of oxygen in atmospheres, living organisms there, making photosynthesis. It's very, very interesting. So my bet is in the next decades, we are going to answer the question that is life in the solar system and in the next centuries, maybe the next one or two centuries, we are being able to know about the conditions in exoplanets far beyond us. So the future is very, very, very interesting for science, but it's always interesting for science because the technological and scientific advances are due to the, our curiosity. It's our motto. So I think the future is, is very interesting. From a still unknown social history of Andalusia to the search for life on other planets, our goal is to rethink and uncover the unknown. In De Miguel's film, The Island of Deception is the site for historical environmental exploitation and animal slaughters in the search for rare marine mammals, which today serves as a scientific base for multiple missions, including research on the extremophile population of the volcanic caldera near Antarctica. In Rio Tinto, these two social and scientific conditions still sit side by side in a complex and interwoven history of evolution, extraction economies, and social strife. Both Javier García Fernández and Juan Ángel Vaquerizo commented on the importance of artistic interpretation of these topics. While archives can give detailed facts of occurrences, an artistic interpretation of history can express the pain that still sits with this landscape and the silence of its people, but also their strength and will to resist. Through depictions of extremophiles and narratives of science fiction, we not only describe scientific advances, but pose problems of ethics and philosophy and create the imagination for societies that we may one day be able to build with improved technology. Today's artist was Regina de Miguel. The podcast has been produced in collaboration with Javier García Fernández and Juan Ángel Vaquerizo Gallego, and I, Andros Miralda, have been your host. Please remember to check out STAGE at www.stage.tba21.org. The editor-in-chief of STAGE is Francesca Tissen bornemisha Soledad Gutiérrez is the content curator, John Aranguren is the curatorial assistant, Nina Esperanda is the project manager, Álvaro Chior is the audio editor, and our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>